0: During the 2016 legislative session, approval was given for the addition of two new justices to the Arizona Supreme Court. That brought the number to seven, and Governor Doug Ducey announced that Andrew Gould and John Lopez would fill the slots. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll talk with soon-to-be Justice Gould about why he was interested in the position, what he thinks about Arizona's merit selection system for choosing judges, and how his background as a rural judge in Yuma County will help him as a justice. Plus, Phoenix-based TGen has announced an alliance with City of Hope. What does that mean for TGen's future, its focus, and how diseases may be researched and fought in the future? I'll sit down with TGen's Dr. Jeffrey Trent, Tess Burleson, and Dr. Kendall Van Curen-Jensen. Also, the City of Phoenix's search for a new Poet Laureate has ended, and the choice was announced this morning. I'll check in with the poet and Gail Brown of the City's Office of Arts and Culture. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, Phoenix-based TGen has announced an alliance with City of Hope. What does that mean for TGen's future and its focus? I'll find out. Plus, what can we learn from Donald Trump's nomination of retired General James Mattis for Secretary of Defense? And is Trump considering more generals for cabinet positions than previous presidents? I'll ask Daniel Rothenberg of ASU Center on the Future of War. We start today's program with the 2016 legislative session when approval was given for the addition of two new justices to the Arizona Supreme Court. After applications were received and intense interviews were conducted, Governor Doug Ducey named Appeals Court Judge Andrew Gould and State Solicitor General John Lopez as his choices. We contacted both of them for what we're calling entrance interviews. John Lopez said he would be available after joining the High Court. Judge Gould accepted our invitation and joins me now. So, Judge Gould, why did you want to be a member of Arizona's
1: Highest Court? Well, the Supreme Court uh, is the court of last review in this state. So uh, in terms of an appellate-type court, you really do get to weigh in and be the last word on, uh, on the case law in this state. But the other thing that people miss when they think about the Supreme Court is it's the court that administers all the other courts in the state. And I was a trial judge for so long, and it's very exciting and interesting to me to help participate in managing the superior courts, the trial courts.
0: I'm curious when we think about, and this is at the federal level, but we often hear that there are issues with caseload, that there are so many cases going on. Have you found that in the work that you do as the Valley has grown, as Arizona has grown, are there more challenges built in?
1: Well, I have a pretty good perspective on this because I was a trial attorney for a number of years and then I was a trial judge for about 12 years. Uh, I I wasn't a trial judge here. I was in Yuma County. I was Mm -hmm. in a rural county but I can tell you the number one problem the courts face is congestion. These trial judges, and when I say trial judges, uh, superior court judges, justices of the peace, municipal court judges, they have an overwhelming caseload. Uh, They have to work as fast and efficiently as they possibly can, and I'm always concerned because when you have to work like that, you can make mistakes. So uh, I am very concerned about the work overload. People go to the courts for everything now. Uh, every social issue, every family problem—they uh, they, just—it's quicker. They don't seem to get uh, the answers they want as fast from uh, other sources, and so they—I think they overutilize the courts. That being said, the court doesn't get to decide whether it's overutilized or not. We have to do our job. You know, on the appellate level, we we obviously see the back end of that mm-hmm. with the appeals. But the backbone of the system is those trial courts, and my heart goes out to them because I know what it's like. It's very, very hard.
0: So as a Supreme Court justice, I don't know, obviously you have known Supreme Court justices in the state, I'm sure for years. Um, are there certain things you're looking forward to specifically, uh, not in terms of the type of case or anything like that, but people know so much more about the U.S. Supreme Court and they think, uh, they're hearing major cases. They also have time to contemplate a little bit and figure out what's the best way to approach it. Um, is that I'll call it a luxury for those at the highest appellate court situation where you can really have a chance to parse through and figure out something, or is there a load of things where you don't really get a chance to be so philosophical and thoughtful?
1: Well, the Supreme Court is a court of review, and what I mean by that is it has discretionary authority to accept most cases. There are certain cases, like like death penalty cases, where it's automatic direct appeal to the Arizona Supreme Court. The court I'm, I'm on now and I'll be on until the end of, of this year, uh, the Court of Appeals, is a Court of Appeals. In other words, if you have a case in Superior Court, you have the right to file an appeal and we take all the appeals. The Supreme Court doesn't have to take every petition for review. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting role in sort of reviewing the cases that come up and deciding is this an issue of statewide importance? Is this an issue where there's a split of authority in the state? Is this an evolving issue that the court needs to address Mm -hmm. so you you have kind of a different role the other thing and I've sat as a substitute justice on the Supreme Court because we do that sometimes on the Court of Appeals there's definitely a feeling up there uh, on state law issues Mm -hmm. anyway this is it there isn't any review beyond that and for years you know as a trial court judge I knew that there could be an appeal for my decision And on the court I serve on now, I know there can always be a petition for review, but on the Supreme Court, there isn't. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's a federal constitutional issue, then it can go up to the federal courts, but it's it's a different role.
0: It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Judge Andrew Gould. He is going to be one of the two new Arizona Supreme Court justices starting in January. Judge Gould, let me get your take on a system that has been lauded by many, which is Arizona's merit selection system. How do you think it works, and how do you think it's worked in this case?
1: Well, I participated in election of judges in the rural county, so I've been an elected judge, and I've been uh, in the merit system for the Court of Appeals and now for the Supreme Court. I think merit selection is... Here was the biggest issue when I ran for judge in Yuma County. Um, I didn't mind going out and getting petition signatures. Um, That was okay. But the money is the issue because when you run for office as a judge you can't raise money the ethical rules don't allow you to directly raise it someone has to raise it for you and it's always a sticky question because contributions to a judicial campaign um, I don't think the public views that in a very positive light the other problem is who wants to contribute to a judicial campaign the average person doesn't really they're not as cognizant of who's running for these local judge positions. I, I often felt like when when uh, when people voted uh, for judges in Yuma County, the judges were at the bottom of the ballot, and that was the last decision they made. <laughs> so the point being, who wants to give money? Attorneys want to give money. And and so that's the sticky issue. And that's where I see the problem in judicial elections. The biggest problem is is the money that gets involved and who contributes that money, and then the the appearance of impropriety if a judge takes money to run a campaign and then sits on that case. And you can see examples from other states, Pennsylvania, some of these other states where people run for the Supreme Court and millions of dollars contributed by big corporate interests or by lawyers. And that's really not the best way to select uh, judges. So I'm a believer in merit and the merit selection process because it keeps the money out of the selection process. I also think, too, that um, the, the system works very well in vetting candidates. Uh, I know that the, the uh, process I just went through involved the commission on appellate court appointments. Mm-hmm. That's a long process, a lot of vetting, a lot of due diligence done on every candidate. Then the governor had a separate staff interview, and, and that was a very detailed process. And then the governor did his own interview, and then they did follow-up on that. So I think that's a good thing when you're picking Supreme Court justices in your state and appellate judges. Final comment, I don't know if um, elections would work or could work in a county like Maricopa County. I think there's something – well, there's over 100 judges, uh, and I just don't know that people really could – fully understand what each and every judge does and, and, uh, and cast a vote, it might be very confusing.
0: So though you're coming from the Court of Appeals, you mentioned that you were a judge in Yuma County. Um, is there a certain flavor that um, may be assisting the high court or just maybe based on your experience coming from a more rural county that perhaps some of us in, here in Maricopa County miss? Is there a different perspective you think you can offer because of that?
1: Definitely. And I'm going to put in my plug for Yuma. It's the greatest town that I've ever lived in, and the people of Yuma have supported me all throughout my career, and I'm very thankful to that entire community. Uh, rural counties do offer a different perspective. Um, there's different interests. You know, if, if you look at a county like Yuma, we're on the Colorado River. We're on the border with Mexico, so we're a border county. We, we live right on the border, and a good number of the families that live in Yuma County and the city of Yuma— they go back and forth to their family in Mexico all the time. So we kind of have a different perspective on the border. Uh, you know, we have a lot of military bases there, the Marine Corps training station uh, for for uh, uh, pilots. Uh, we have a lot of farming there. Those are kind of different interests than maybe what the average person in Maricopa County might see. But those are very important interests for the state. The, uh, the military is very important to the state. Uh, the agriculture in the state generates, a, billions of dollars for this state. So yeah, I mean, coming from a rural county, you see those things. But I also think um, there's an awful lot of important litigation that occurs in those rural counties. People don't realize that. Cases happen in rural counties. There's, there's big cases, a lot of uh, significant decisions that come out of those counties. And so it's nice to be able to have someone to come in from from outside of Maricopa County and say, hey, these courts are very important out here. You have to support them because there's a lot of important things happening in those courtrooms.
0: I can think of a lot of friends of mine who went into the law because they saw Perry Mason or there was some fictional attorney that they really enjoyed. Did you ever have something like that? where, Or was there something in, in your younger part of your days where you thought you could make an impact? Or was it something as, as light as, well, I'm watching this, this person do this. And I really think maybe I can translate that to real life.
1: My mother was a legal secretary for 35 years, and I remember as a young boy, as early as I can recall, going to the office and uh, sometimes sitting there waiting for her to get done. And I would see these lawyers coming in and out. Mm. Sometimes they'd come out and talk to me. And they were uh, they were so professional, and they just seemed to be so distinguished. So I looked up to them, and uh, over the years, you know, I would go to all these law firms, and and meet a lot of these lawyers and, and so I looked up to them very much. My parents encouraged me uh, t- to pursue the, the, the law as a way to help people. It's a privilege to be able to go to law school. It's a privilege to be able to practice. It's a tremendous privilege to be a judge and serve as a judge. You can have such a positive impact and an important impact on people. And in this society where so many important things are litigated where they come down to a court decision uh, it's It's a very important place to be if you want to make the society better and you want to have an impact on american society so i've I've been aware of that since I was a young boy. I've seen what these attorneys were like and the kind of people they were and and I was encouraged in that regard by my parents so to me it's it's a, it's a public service issue and serving the public, trying to make things better.
0: Judge Andrew Gould was named one of the two new Arizona Supreme Court justices. He'll start that new position in January. And Judge Gould, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Steve. And still to come on here and now, why is President-elect Trump so fascinated by former generals? And then later this hour, we'll meet the new Poet Laureate for the City of Phoenix. Stay with us.
2: KJZZ
3: is supported by Arizona Community Foundation, helping Arizona donors make charitable investments in health, education, community development, the arts, and the environment. AZfoundation.org.
4: Good morning. This is Here and Now on KJZZ 91.5 FM. If you're listening to us on our website, KJZZ.org, or on our mobile app, thanks for joining us. Well, we've got uh, a forecast high in the Phoenix area of 64 degrees today around the state. It's 36 in Flagstaff, 41 in Prescott, 64 degrees in Casa Grande. It's 56 in Tucson and 60 in Yuma. Did you know you can turn your car, truck or boat into something you really want? When you donate your vehicle, you'll make it possible for KJZZ's local reporters to cover everything that's important to you and your community. Donating your car, truck or boat is easy at cars.kjzz.com. Dot .org Right now in Phoenix under partly cloudy skies we have 61 degrees at
0: 11:20 This is KJZZ's here and now in Phoenix I'm Steve Goldstein President-elect Donald Trump has named retired General James Mattis as his choice to be the next U.S. Defense Secretary. That'll require legislation because Mattis has not been out of uniform for seven years, a requirement if a military man is going to lead the Pentagon. Trump has also been considering former General David Petraeus for a couple of positions, and Michael T. Flynn as Trump's pick to be National Security Advisor. So is Trump more focused on military men than his predecessors? Does that give us a clue on his points of view and the direction he wants for the U.S. military? With me to talk about that and other items is Daniel Rothenberg, co-director of the Center on the Future of War at ASU. He's also the author of Drone Wars, Transforming Conflict, Law and Policy. And Daniel, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Let's talk first of all about this legislation. Why was it initially created to have this time in between when a member of the military is in the military and then moves into a position at the
5: Pentagon? So it's a longstanding respect for the idea that the military should be under civilian control. So the president is the commander in chief, and the secretary of defense is, is expected to be either a civilian—that is, someone who hasn't uh, a civilian who hasn't served in the military—or someone who's got a long enough period of time between their service, seven years, mm-hmm. that it ensures and respects this basic division.
0: Was it out of concern that there we don't want too much of the military-industrial complex? Is it? where? Is there something behind that? Because even when we see some of the potential nominees of President-elect Trump. Most of the people, at least, um, come with good resumes and people respect them. But are a lot of them being in the military? Does that concern some folks?
5: Well, obviously, it concerns people. I think people should be concerned about cabinet nominations just generally. It's a, They're important positions, and they're an interesting point of debate and discussion. And so I think, you know, there's some heated debate out there, but that's, that's a sign of a healthy situation rather than the opposite. But that's the politics
0: of it. I guess when it comes down to practical matters, um, do you think it is significant whether there's an Ash Carter or whether there's a Leon Panetta, or whether it's General Mattis, as far as just what their specific backgrounds are. Should we be looking more at philosophies or from which field they've come from?
5: Well, it's two, you know, General Mattis is clearly a selection that plays to an enormous amount of respect for his person, for his career. So it's a very smart choice. I don't think it's that sensible to only speak about whether somebody was a general or wasn't a general. These are important positions. National security is a a key decision. It's one of the areas where the executive has the most power. I think the debates are fascinating. I think there are a lot of reasons why Trump is pulling, is selecting so many generals that are not about whether or not generals per se are appropriate, Mm -hmm. but about the state we're in right now in the country.
0: Yeah, so what does that indicate to you about his philosophies or about how he sees the greater world?
5: Well, I think one key point is that when we look at politicians in general, they have enormously low approval ratings right now in the country. Mm -hmm. That's actually true for the media. That's true for many core institutions. Interestingly, the military has among the higher approval ratings, and I do think, and there is some danger to this, but I do think that by choosing generals, it's a selection that plays to a sort of generalized popular support and respect. Do these generals,
0: the ones we have heard about so far at least, General Mattis, um, Flynn, we've heard, we're hearing about John Kelly. Petraeus uh, Petraeus yeah. as well. Um, are these gentlemen that would fall into... A similar category in terms of what their
5: experiences have been, what their philosophies have been. So no, I think is the quick answer. Good. Yeah. They're quite different individuals. I think what does make them similar, of course, is that they've served during, during a particularly interesting and intense time of the military's role in the world. So they've all been serving in combat tours, and they've played key leadership roles in managing, you know, whether it's Southern Command and Kelly's circumstance situation or Petraeus being mm-hmm. um, both running the CIA and also you know, running operations in Afghanistan or Iraq. So, but I think they're very different in individual as individuals, they're very different in their philosophies. Surely anybody paying attention to just the regular news reporting can see an enormous distinction between the positions and attitude and tone of a Mattis appointment or, or nomination mm-hmm. and uh, a, uh, a Flynn appointment. I think certainly we've seen in his post-military career a series of statements that are of enormous concern to people around the world for the role of national security advisor, although one might see a balancing effect by choosing, say, a Mattis or or a Kelly, uh, people with very different sort of public demeanors and public expressions of their opinions.
0: Do you think it is, certainly it is fair to parse through what each of these gentlemen has said, do you think what's being said about Flynn is not taking enough into account what he had done as a general. Are we focusing too much on some things he said that may offend some people? I mean, does that is that something that should affect whether we decide whether someone is qualified for a job or not, especially of, of this serious level?
5: So there's no reason to deny respect for his significant military accomplishments. You know, he played this key role in Joint Special Operations Command in Iraq at a time when among the more significant, at least tactical actions, was to 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 to. Create a whole a whole new approach to attacking Al Qaeda, Iraq. So, mm-hmm. no reason to to not provide not not to respect him for that. But at the same time, the kind of statements that he has made and the sort of you know information that he has tweeted and his incredibly aggressive tone uh, in the political sphere you know, openly in the political sphere, Mm -hmm. leading chance of lock her up, surely that has to be taken into account when one's considering a role like national security advisor.
0: And we'd also heard, actually, and I don't know where this goes, because we had heard there were four finalists for Secretary of State, and apparently that had expanded one of whom was was General Stavridis, so also right. another person. Correct. Uh, it, it just seems, is it as obvious as it seems that Donald Trump is considering or or hiring more of these former members of the military? You mentioned how it reflects how our world is
5: today, but does it seem to stand out as much as it feels to someone like me? Y- yes, right. I, I mean, it's clearly a different approach to what it means to assemble a cabinet. What it means in terms of being good or not good is difficult to evaluate. Mm-hmm. These are strong figures and strong personalities. I do think it's, you know, it's the cause of some concern, for example, to nominate somebody like General Kelly for a position in Homeland Security because one of the areas where I think Homeland Security, we may not want to see that Department be going is greater militarization. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's enormous dangers to that track. But then again, we don't really know what that appointment necessarily means. In the case of someone like Mattis, we have some indications of what he we think he would support and how he'd operate. And you know, certainly, he's one of the most respected generals around. I think the idea of choosing generals per se is not necessarily a problem, although it does tell us something about the Trump approach to assembling his cabinet.
0: What about how? the military has changed does that give us any insights in terms of what a general would have been thought of in the days of of eisenhower or patton and what an experience a general would have had now in terms of the changing technology in terms of strategy when we're talking about petraeus or kelly and as you said they're all very different in terms of what they've done and perhaps their philosophies as well are we seeing an evolution in the military when it comes to this so when we think of a general
5: we're thinking of someone in a different way than we would have five decades ago and is that an evolution you expect to continue well, as somebody who co-directs something called the Center on the Future of War, there is a fairly heated debate as to what is changing or not changing about the characteristics of war and conflict. Mm-hmm. So there are some things we know are are significant changes in, say, the past five decades in the U.S. For example, the percentage of Americans who are directly engaged in military activity is gone... Quite, it's become much smaller Mm -hmm. at a time when there's been a lot of demands made on the military. And by demands, I mean specific combat demands in the post 9 11 wars. So we see an interesting situation where our country is at war. Politicians tell us it's been at war since uh, shortly after 9 11. Mm -hmm. And yet the society doesn't feel the impact and salience and intensity of what war we expect war to mean. That puts special pressures on civil military relations. I think all of these generals have lived through elements of that. What that experience means for their role in essentially civilian positions Mm -hmm. is an open question. I think they'll be different as individuals. We don't know where they're going to go. I think we need to be careful and respectful of this fundamental principle that the military and its enormous force and capabilities should be under civilian control. So this is something worth thinking about. It's too early in the game to know what it means, Mm -hmm. but these are generals who've lived through this incredibly intense post-9-11 period, and surely our society, it's an appropriate time (laughs) through this cabinet or through other processes to reflect on what that means for all of us.
0: Something to watch very closely. Daniel Rothenberg is co-director of the Center on the Future of War at ASU. He's also the author of Drone Wars, Transforming Conflict, Law, and Policy. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Proposition 205, which would have legalized recreational marijuana in Arizona, was defeated earlier, rather in November, but that hasn't slowed discussion about marijuana, specifically medical, in the state. A lawsuit's been filed claiming fees for patients and dispensaries are too high, and the Department of Health Services collected $2.6 million more in fees than it took to run the medical marijuana program with me to talk about that. And a few other items is Will Humble, former director of the Arizona Department of Health Services. He's currently the division director for health policy and evaluation at the U of A's Health Sciences Center. Will, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for the invitation. Always nice to talk with you. So do you do you agree with this premise that uh, perhaps fees could change now that more people have their medical marijuana cards?
6: Well, you know, it's hard for me to say since I left the agency a couple of years ago. Um You know, when I originally set the fees back in 2011, I had estimated that we'd have about 25,000 cardholders and that that would bring in, you know, a couple million dollars in revenue that would be enough to run the program. But over time, as you know, there's. You know more than we have far more than 25,000 patients i think there's north of 100,000 patients now so with the card fees being 150 a piece you know it's i think you know well the record shows that there's more revenue coming in than the program is using uh you know to to operate the medical marijuana program but it's really it's not i'm not in the agency anymore so it's not my call you know Well, Sue
0: Sisley is the name we always associate most with marijuana-related research. There was controversy over how the legislature would handle things, how the state universities would handle things. Regardless of that, would you like to see more research being done into this? Uh, And what direction do you think it should go as far as whether, whether certain things are really aided by medical marijuana and others are not? Do we need to be doing this regardless of what people's individual philosophies about weed are?
6: Well, it's interesting you bring that up. There was actually an opportunity in 2014, I think it was a Representative Orr had a bill, um, that would have allowed ADHS to use the fund, the medical marijuana fund, for a couple things. One would be research, but also to use the fund for educational purposes, to educate and actually discourage young people from using marijuana and that that bill actually in 2014 actually made it all the way through the house uh, but stalled in the senate so at the time i was in the agency of course and i was hopeful that that bill would uh, make it through and if that if it if in fact it would have passed then that would have given the agency some additional ways that they could have used uh, the medical marijuana funds, you know, for both research, but also for more public education. But alas, that bill died in the Senate.
0: What do you think about the future of recreational marijuana in Arizona? Uh, is it at some point, is it a no-brainer slam dunk that it will pass as it would in most other states? Or do you think Arizona is different in some way?
6: Well, I think, uh, well, it's, <laughs> I probably would have answered that question differently six weeks ago um, but now that we see the outcome of the election I think all bets are off in terms of what might happen with uh, retail marijuana in any state including Arizona I think as we move forward there will be more and more public support for uh, retail marijuana or or more specifically towards decriminalizing some of the um, you know, the criminal penalties for possession, um, just because young people today have a very different and more, uh, you know, young people today look at marijuana differently than older voters. And with the demographics of the state changing and more younger people becoming voters every year, I think there'll be more and more support for either retail marijuana or reducing the criminal penalties. Um but having said that, it's a different question really than, you know, what's going to happen nationally because, uh, you, know, with, you know, with the new nominations of the folks that will be running the federal agencies like uh, the attorney general, you know, you know, there's going to be different people in those federal roles and we don't yet know what, how they feel about states experimenting um, with retail marijuana. We'll play pundit for just a second. Why do you think 205 lost? Hmm. I don't know. I I actually (laughs) thought I really did think it was going to win. It failed by a fairly small margin. Um, I think, for one thing, the advertising effort that was put out in late October may have been effective with, you know, the folks from the different jurisdictions in Colorado, uh, the number of ads that were on. But that's just pure speculation. I don't really know. why it didn't pass. I thought it was going to pass, but I was wrong.
0: Well, one other thing I wanted to address with you. Um, earlier this week, there was discussion, and you were part of it as far as fireplaces and uh, dirtying up the air and that sort of thing. I wonder, um, even when you were director of the Department of Health, I'm sure people would be upset when, uh, and this was a DEQ or Maricopa County Animal or, or Air Quality, but I think people really love around the holidays to have the fireplace burning. But are we really seeing that there are are true health effects related to this and people should be thinking about this more?
6: Yeah, so there's a couple things there. Um, Number one is that there is a really well-established link between uh, wood smoke and uh, asthma episodes, respiratory problems, even heart and uh, cardiac issues among sensitive uh, folks. Um, and wood smoke is a major component of particulate matter pollution in neighborhoods, you know, because it is a very, it, it's a pretty localized source. So when you burn your fireplace on a non-burn day, when there's stagnant air, um, You know, you're putting your neighbors that have chronic medical conditions at risk. Now, having said that, you know, the the DEQ and the county uh, air quality department do a really good job at working with the National Weather Service and forecasters within DEQ to do predictions around when they should call a no burn day. And they're actually pretty judicious about that. Um, Last year, for example, or last winter, for example, um, they only called three no burn days. So, I mean, that's really not too much to ask for folks to hold off um, for three days during the winter in terms of using, uh, you know, a, a burning wood. The the year bef- the two years before that, there were 12 no-burn days. So, I, you know, I don't really look at it as asking the public to sacrifice all that much when, you know, you're just asking them to hold off on certain days. You know, it'd be different if it was, you know, it would be more challenging if you If you said, well, you can't burn between November and March or something like that. But that's not what this program is all about. It's really about focusing on those targeted days when air quality is already pretty bad. Will Humble is Division Director for Health Policy and
0: Evaluation at the U of A's Health Sciences Center. He's also former Director of the State Department of Health Services. Will, thanks for the time. Thanks, Steve. Still to come on Here and Now, we'll take a look at the future of TGen, and we'll meet Phoenix's first Poet Laureate. Stay with us.
3: KJZZ is supported by St. Mary's Food Bank Alliance. The Arizona Charitable Tax Credit has increased, so you can now donate more to help those in need. You can help at stmarysfoodbank.org.
4: And good morning. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. Well, the Valley forecast calling for partly cloudy conditions today, high in the mid 60s. A little bit of a warming trend over the next couple of days, though, mostly sunny skies all the way through the weekend. We should see highs tomorrow of 68 and 71 on Friday. Stay with us for NPR's Here and Now at 12 today. A new study says repealing the Affordable Care Act would leave 60 million people without insurance. We'll hear about the study and Republican plans for health care. And if you can't get tickets to Hamilton, maybe you'd like to try the off-Broadway parody called Spamilton. Here and now from Boston, starts at noon. We have partly cloudy skies in Phoenix right now. It's 61 degrees at 1138. This is KJZZ's
0: Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. On November 30th, Phoenix-based TGen, or the Translational Genomics Research Institute, announced a new alliance with City of Hope and the goal of making precision medicine a common thing for patients. Precision medicine is being considered more for cancer and rare genetic diseases. The concept of TGen originated in 2002 and has been a part of the downtown Phoenix landscape since 2004. I went to TGen's offices to talk with President and Research Director Dr. Jeffrey Trent, Chief Operating Officer Tess Burleson, and Associate Professor Dr. Kendall Van Kuren jensen I started the conversation by asking Dr. Trent what the new alliance between TGen and City of Hope will mean going
7: forward. Yeah, so over the past 15 years, TGen has become a recognized leader in genomic research, uh, especially for patient benefit. And this has uh, included our focusing on the generation of tools and technologies to understand the cause of a genetic disorder or or complex uh, disease, also to translate that information to whether a patient would uh, respond or not respond to a given therapy, and then to try to translate that information into a new test or treatment. So in announcing the partnership and alliance with the City of Hope, we're partnering with one of the nation's premier medical systems. One that for the past 115 years has served the largest and most diverse patient population uh, in the United States and the LA area. And one that we think will benefit both high risk populations, but also identify targets for prevention, treatments, and uh, advancing initiatives and in, in health equity.
0: Now TGN is so associated with Arizona, with the Valley, I presume this means this is just part of other partnerships that TGen has made. Because some people have said, well, does this mean there's we're losing something? We're going to lose something with the, the corridor and whatnot.
7: So the leadership, the focus, the effort, the individuals that have uh, been so critical to make TGen uh, a focus here in Arizona remain in Arizona and remain focused on our partnerships uh, that we have both here in the state but, of course, around the country and around the world. This uh, – allows us to scale those particularly and especially inside this remarkably diverse and large geographic uh, uh, and population center in the LA area in concert with City of Hope.
0: Tess, let's talk a little bit about economic impact. First of all, can you give me some numbers, but beyond that, um, how has the impact changed over perhaps the past decade or so as TGen has expanded?
3: TGen has had um, external Independent groups come in and look at what we've done in terms of economic impact for the state, starting with the first one in 2006 and then periodically a few years apart, uh, most recently finishing one in 2015 this past year. There's different different returns. So one would be just back to the general fund based on what the state gives and, and tax revenues, what goes directly back. And that number's uh, two to one. That's just cash right back in. Then there is the economic return for what TGEN operations, the research operation itself does. So anything that's been spent in the state of Arizona uh, would be included in that calculation. If something was purchased from a, a manufacturer outside of the state, that's excluded from the calculation. And those numbers were closer to 46 and a half dollars for every one dollar invested by the state. Um, and when we include then the commercialization efforts that we've had um, in as of the last report, uh, that jump number jumps up to 174 million dollars uh, annually, um, which is significantly more than um, we've ever had before. And that is, uh, you know, 86 percent growth uh, since the first time we had this done in 2006.
0: Why does the financial impact make sense? Why does that have to be part of the whole equation?
3: Well, we've been very fortunate to have the state and the community, the city, um, many of the community members uh, and, and civic leadership in the state uh, really focus on getting TGen to the, the community here. So Arizona is our home. Uh, we, Arizona community has been very invested in our, in our success, and we have promised economic development. Research is discovery. And in order for those discoveries to translate the most broadly for patient impact, they have to be commercialized. So we sit in a really nice applied and translational space, and that space really allows us to really rapid-fire, and I like to say on-the-fly, although there's not really on-the-fly research, uh, we can on-the-fly adjust technologies that are, as they improve, and include them into clinical trials and clinical research and applied research so that we could see the benefit for a broader population and then move to have those things pushed out into the commercialization through partnerships, licensing arrangements, and and commercial spin-outs. We've had about uh, 16 of those since inception.
0: There's been a lot of focus on concussions. People have focused a lot on football, young athletes, whether it's young soccer players or whatnot. And you've been doing some research into that as far as, I we mean, can we figure out whether someone is – more likely to get a concussion or whether that concussion is going to be more dramatic. Can you give us some background on that research?
2: Yes. Yeah, so we've been working a lot with Arizona State University and Barrow Neurological Institute and Banner Concussion Center um, collecting information from people who have had traumatic brain injuries or even these sub-concussive blows that the football team um, generally gets during repeat practice and games. And we've also got another pronged approach where we're looking at um, severe traumatic brain injuries in the pediatric population with uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital. And together, all of these projects were getting closer to being able to diagnose predictors of injury, downstream problems, and hopefully we can also participate in some of the upcoming uh, projects that are going on across Arizona, where people are looking at the eventual um, accumulation of some of these injuries that lead to long-term effects for retired football players and others. Um, these are really important projects that we're excited about continuing to work on and bringing in um, information from the, the City of Hope to look at some of these very specific RNAs and different molecules that we've found in some of these tests that they're sort of the experts in
0: so. when we think about how we're all so different I mean, each one of us has an individual genome sequence everything else how different can a brain react to this sort of trauma i mean are there some people who could have multiple concussions and maybe not be affected by it for decades, and others are affected by it almost rapidly.
2: Yeah, we see traumatic, uh, dramatic differences between groups. So um, depending on the age of the population, depending on how the, the injurious event occurred, um, different things associated with that, we can get very different outcomes. And then trying to manage those outcomes and make them better for the patient is really what we're after.
0: And can males and females be different? Are the brains that different? Or can that be can certain Females have very similar brains to men as far as how they could be affected by concussion.
2: There needs to be more research done on the male-female uh, gender differences. But absolutely, people find that, for instance, uh, women soccer players are more affected by, you know, head injuries than male soccer players. That probably has to do with their physiology. Um, but yes, there are differences for sure.
0: There has been talk about... Um, whether there has been enough support given, especially after the Great Recession, to research institutions, to whatever it may be, the biosciences. There's always been that phrase of of winners and losers and whatnot. How closely do you have to follow this sort of thing when there's a leadership change? We had a a new governor relatively recently. There's going to be a new legislative group in there. Uh, How important is it for you to keep track of what's going on there to see if TGEN and other groups can make more advances in these areas?
3: It's very important. We try uh, very hard to make sure that those groups that really provide support to TGEN, including uh, the state and other, um, a lot of donors across the, uh, the valley here and around, around the world, really, to make sure they understand what we're doing with those dollars and, and things like the return on investment analysis that we've done um, and reporting. We have no problem being very transparent about what we're working on, what we're trying to achieve, um, how we might adjust course if we're going to, when you're discovering you don't know what you're going to find or what you're not, how you adjust course along the way and try to keep them very engaged because it is important for them to see that they are putting those dollars to good use. Um, And when you can do an ROI, when you can say, look, here's what we said we do and here's what we did, I'm very proud to say TGEN has always kept its promises that we've made. We've always delivered on those promises. So it's good.
7: Well, I think at the national level, there's been a flattening and, in fact, with inflation, a decrease in funding for biomedical sciences over almost the past 10 years, just this year we're seeing uh, the likelihood that at the federal level there'll be an investment into the National Institutes of Health, the major funder of biomedical research, that it looks like both sides of the aisle uh, plan to support. Many other states, California, Texas, Colorado, many of our neighboring supports uh, also have increased their funding for initiatives like stem cell research as well as other aspects. And I do think that it's important for Arizona to look at how we build here uh, additional capabilities, especially around the exciting new developments of new medical schools, new buildings, new faculty coming on board, now the expansion of TGen here in Arizona even further. Uh, This is an incredibly important element of our economy and especially the knowledge-based workforce.
0: The Flint Foundation has had their biosciences roadmap for a number of years, and things indicate that moving in a positive direction. Um, Do you think enough of the public knows about that from the standpoint that um, when it comes to sort of whether it's simple or more complicated than that?
3: There is a lot more that can be done. Uh, I think the biggest thing, um, things don't happen serendipitously, I don't think, sometimes. TGen really took a leadership role, and the community said, look, we want to do something no one else is doing. So applying these tools to patient care is very was was considered crazy, I think, at the time. Uh, as recently as 2010, the head of the NCI was saying this is a great way, genomics is a great way to do research. And then, you know, five years later Obama's saying, hey, precision medicine initiative's coming out, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we really have been pioneers in this space, and I'd really like to see us continue to lead. But now you're seeing communities all over the country jumping in, and and it's much more commonplace now to see precision medicine capabilities. And I would really love to see the uh, community here continue to pursue and lead the field as we have done in the past. I think this is a great opportunity for Arizona to stay relevant in this space and leading it.
0: Does the narrative continue to be though that that the valley that Arizona is behind San Diego is behind Boston, whatever it may be And is that is that a fair narrative? Was it at one point it's not anymore?
7: Oh no it's it's a fair narrative. we you know we see percentage increases that are still many-fold beyond Boston, Seattle, uh, San Diego. But uh, the incredible part is again, if you track hard numbers, number of jobs, number of new companies and others. And even if you look at some of the publications suggesting that uh, innovation uh, and entrepreneurs are moving to Arizona, this is also happening in the biomedical sciences. So uh, it it took decades for those centers to grow. It's taken us, uh, really it's only been about 15 years since TGen got here. So we're still on a growth curve and excited to see where this next uh, decade takes us.
3: Yeah, those percentages, when you have a larger base to start with, it's harder to have a high growth rate. But when you're small, when you start with, you know, very little as Arizona did 15 years ago, those percentages can be still high, but then you still are very far behind in terms of the volume as opposed to the growth. So we'll we'll get there.
0: Professor, we talk a lot about business collaborations and whatnot, when at the research level, um, I presume folks in the research level want to work together because they want to get to things. Is that uh, Can that be fairly smooth if people are, are sort of fitting together in some way as parts of the puzzle?
2: Yeah, so there are quite a few initiatives across Arizona right now around uh, brain health. And the NIH is even making this a, a national initiative, you know, to really look at, you know, the number of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients as the aging population occurs. And Arizona has really made um, a footprint in that, is really trying to, to go after that. And I think that the things that we're doing with the City of Hope absolutely play into that and bring us new tools and expertise that we can apply to those things. But um, as an initiative, all of us want to, to be able to increase um, the, the stuff that we're doing together. And absolutely, it can only happen.
0: That was TGen Associate Professor Dr. Kendall Van Curen-Jensen, along with TGen President and Research Director Dr. Jeffrey Trent and Chief Operating Officer Tess Burleson. We spoke earlier at TGen's offices in Phoenix. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. In the fall, the city of Phoenix announced it would be looking for the city's first ever poet laureate. Phoenix's leaders had set a goal of having the poet in place in January, and earlier today that decision was made public. It's Rosemarie Dombrowski who joins me, along with Gail Brown, executive director for Phoenix's Office of Arts and Culture. Welcome to you both.
8: Thank
1: you. Hi. Thank you.
0: And Rosemarie, congratulations. So how does it feel to thank be the so initial much. poet laureate?
8: It feels stellar at the moment, but I have to go home and get back to grading, so back down to earth quickly for me, which is how it should be for a poet. (laughs) There are
0: a lot of things involved, and Gail and I have discussed some of these in the past, but what do you really want to do first, whether it's something actually concrete or just something philosophical?
8: I think philosophically speaking, I'm trying to break down some of the stereotypes about poetry, about its archaic nature, its inaccessibility, uh, sometimes even its academic reputation, I want everyone to realize that it's a fantastic vessel for self-expression, for uh, sociocultural dilemmas and protests, and uh, it gives anyone in any group a voice. And I think people need to recognize that about the form so not that we can bring it back.
0: And not to put too much pressure on, but how does, how does one do that? What are some thoughts you have about that?
8: You know, this morning, I kept saying micro zines for all. So I feel like that's my slogan for the day. Um, My students and I run a micro poetry, micro zine press. And we do that specifically because we feel like the package is less intimidating. The craft is never sacrificed within the poems that we publish. And we publish authors from all over the country. But zines are cool. And the package is, again, enticing, appealing, tiny. People can read it in 30 seconds. And I think that's how you sort of ease people back into the form.
0: Gail, you've been involved in poetry for a long time. What is it about Rosemarie that excites you for this position?
9: Well, first of all, she's a fantastic poet. Uh, I read her work and um, was thrilled uh, that uh, the panel that we put together to select the Poet Laureate for Phoenix decided that Rosemary was would be the selection. Uh, she's a good poet. She's an educator. She has uh, a great kind of community presence in Phoenix, has run a reading series here, in fact, several. Um, so she's in some ways just the ideal candidate for this position.
0: Let's talk a little bit about process, um, just because I want people to know how this worked, because when you and I spoke a couple of months ago, we sort of had an idea of what the criteria would be, what you were looking for. Um, Did you get applicants you were excited about? And then from there, take us through the process.
9: We did. Um, So when we spoke last time, we were in the process of of making that public call, of getting the word out in in the, in the, the, the greater Phoenix area that we were looking for a poet laureate. And uh, we then uh, were able to... Um, uh, f- Find a number of applicants that were interested in this position. And we assembled a panel of poetry professionals, people who have a lot of experience in poetry, publishers, teachers. Uh, we, in fact, had two laureates. Uh, the, our state poet laureate, of course, Alberto Rios, uh, was involved in the process, as well as Laura Tohe, who's the poet laureate for the Navajo Nation, among others. And so they looked through the applications and uh, and made their decision, which we forwarded then to Council Councilwoman Pastor, as well as. Mayor Stanton.
0: Now, the big announcement was made publicly this morning. Um, What was that like? What was the environment like for both of you?
8: I'll let Rosemary start. Well, there were certainly more people there than I had expected. Uh, Lots of press and media, lots of students from South Mountain Community College. I think most of the librarians were outside for the announcement as well. I got to meet some of the residents of Phoenix who were at the library as well as some students afterwards. Everybody was warm and supportive and seemed absolutely thrilled. So I think I was thrilled Mm. by how thrilled they were. And the mayor was ridiculously happy for me (laughs) and read one of my poems, which I told him not to screw up before he started reading (laughs) it. Um, So I was surprised. He did a great job. He was carrying my book around and he made me sign it, uh, which was also really charming. And it, it was just it was the environment that I would have dreamed for an event like this.
9: It was a real celebration of poetry. That's what I loved about it. The mayor's enthusiasm, Councilwoman Pastor's enthusiasm, Absolutely. having Alberto Rios there. And of course, Rosemary did a fabulous job talking about what the the position meant to her and reading a lovely poem of her own. So we couldn't have asked for a better morning, I don't think.
0: What do you think Phoenix it means Gale. for the city of Phoenix, Gale, to, to have this? We discussed this a little bit a few months ago, but I, I want to reiterate the fact that what does it show about the way mm-hmm. the city's growing up, becoming more diverse, whatever it may be?
9: Well, kind of following up on something that Rosemary said, I, I think community building is part of what we are hoping for in this, that we, we that we do use poetry and language and literature to to talk to our community broadly. We have so many different kinds of people in the city uh, to engage with them, to perhaps encourage them to do mm-hmm. their own writing, uh, their own reading of poetry, um, and and, um, and then maybe to see what kind of writing comes out of this for Rosemary, what kind of new work uh, she might generate that is somehow expressive or demonstrative of, of who we are as a people in a community, in a city.
0: Rosemary, can you be a cultural ambassador? Does that feel like it's a lot of weight on your shoulders or does it seem really, really exciting?
8: I feel like I'm a cultural ambassador in the classroom and I feel like I've been doing this work in the community with my students for a long time, a decade plus And I've always considered myself a community poet. That's where I've embedded myself and my students Mm -hmm. for years in a variety of projects. And I was involved in a public art project this semester with my students as well this is the kind of stuff that we look for. We look for these opportunities all the time. And I think that being in the position that I'm in, I'll be able to give my students more of those opportunities. And I'll be able to give the community at large more of those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I don't really look at it so much as pressure on me. I think it's more opportunities for everybody who needs a voice and who deserves that voice.
0: I don't want us to go to the Webster's Dictionary, but how would you define poetry? And has it evolved? Because for many people, Hip hop defines poetry. For mm-hmm. some people, they can even find it in a mural or some somewhere around. There, that's sure. poetry that speaks to them. It do, it isn't always sort of the the word choices that people have thought of. It, can it be that way?
8: I think it's a man's lyrical and oftentimes linguistic skills, certainly lyrical skill. But as I said this morning, it's also the genre of literature or the genre of art that's known for its empathy and its sensitivity to human suffering, uh, to loss, to otherness, to illness. So for me, poetry is the vehicle for those kinds of stories, more so than the other genres.
0: Gail, have thoughts about that?
9: Um, I think that we, I, as I've mentioned before, I used to work at the Poetry Center at the University of Arizona, so, um, and it was a presenter of poetry. And we always did think of it as, I think, a very inclusive place. There are many different forms of poetry that are practiced and are very exciting for different uh, groups of people. Yes. But I do agree very much with Rosemary that it is, it is an art form that does speak to empathy, that does speak to our shared humanity, that does call things out of us that maybe other art forms don't quite
8: as much.
0: Is there a right or wrong with poetry, or no?
8: I think there's always a uh, better word choice, okay. and that's generally how I approach it with my students. Uh, my students don't like to punctuate. I don't know why. I'm a master punctuator, <laughs> so that's something that uh, you know I'm constantly revising with them in the classroom. But I think sometimes we don't, if we're not used to this form, find the right words to express what we're attempting to express. And I think somebody who has a little bit more experience in the poetic world can help other people shape their stories using better words, using more appropriate language, just to make those words that much more impacting.
0: What did you think of uh, Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize?
8: You know, I thought it should have been Leonard Cohen. Uh, but ultimately (laughs) I also grew up with Bob Dylan. I'm grateful for the music that I grew up with in college, and Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen were both a part of that, Uh, but so was Nirvana and so was Green Day. So I think I would have been happy with any of those choices. Mm. Uh, These are people who have stood for social justice. These are people who have, again, spoken up and, and attempted to represent the issues of humanity in their respective eras, and I have immense respect for them. I don't think that poetry is just a form that exists on the page.
0: Gail, sorry to leave with just a few seconds, but how would you define success after two years of, of Rosemary?
9: Oh, I think uh, a number of readings, uh, maybe a project that involves a certain community that Rosemary is interested in. I, we're making this up a bit as we go along, right. so I'll check back with you.
0: Gail Brown is executive director for Phoenix's Office of Arts and Culture, and Rosemary Dombrowski is Phoenix's first poet laureate. Again, congratulations, and thanks to you both.
8: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: And thanks very much to our senior producer, Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond, for their assistance on today's program. Thank you very much for listening. If you missed any part of the program, you can go online later today to kjzz.org to hear anything you may have missed. This is member support at KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.
9: KJZZ is
3: supported by Amazon Studios and Roadside Attractions, presenting Manchester by the Sea with Casey Affleck, Michelle Williams, Kyle Chandler, and Lucas Hedges, written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, now playing.